For the News and Observer, I'm Avi Bajpa, your host of this week's episode of Under the Dome. In today's episode, we'll be taking a look at the opioid crisis here in North Carolina and a new system that researchers at UNC Chapel Hill have developed and will soon roll out, which will monitor and check the drug supply in order to warn communities about dangerous substances before people are exposed to them. An average of nine North Carolinians died from an overdose each day in 2020, according to the State Department of Health and Human Services. The number of fatal overdoses is expected to be higher in 2021, according to provisional data. To understand the current state of the crisis and how this new drug checking and awareness program will work, I spoke with Dr. Nabarun Dasgupta, an epidemiologist at the UNC Chapel Hill Gillings School of Global Public Health, who studies drugs and, and infectious diseases, and who helped create this new drug checking program. Thank you, Dr. Dasgupta, for, for joining us on Under the Dome. We really appreciate you coming on to talk about this extremely important issue, um, the opioid crisis here in North Carolina. This week was a reminder of, of how stark the situation is. The health department here in North Carolina announced that overdose deaths um, in 2020 uh, increased by more than all, nearly a 1,000, topping 3,300 3, um, deaths in, in 2020, the first year of uh, basically full force of, of the pandemic and all the effects that came with that. You are, you know, you're launching this um, new street drug assessment program in conjunction with some of your colleagues at, at UNC, um, and you talk about the urgency with which researchers, public health officials need to act right now. So I was wondering if you could talk about where the situation stands right now. To be even higher than 2020. In other states that we work with, in Kentucky and other places, we're seeing very similar patterns. And um, this problem is not going away. It is definitely on the upswing. So, you know, it seems that this is not just an issue of more people being affected by the illicit drug supply, but actually the drug supply itself becoming more treacherous. You talked about volume. So is it correct to say it's an issue of volume, but also uh, sort of a less predictable drug supply, um, more potent uh, drugs and substances in the drug supply itself and, and, and cases more uh, cases occurring more frequently where people might not necessarily know what they're what they're consuming. Yes, that's absolutely correct. So during the pandemic, the the nature of the drugs themselves has also changed and it become more treacherous and unpredictable. And so when drugs become unpredictable is when overdoses increase the fastest. So what we're seeing during this time period is that there are more potent molecules in the drugs, but there, but the amount of them changes from week to week, from place to place around the state. Uh, we also see, yeah, and, and that's, but that's something that's, that's, that has happened over a long time, right? It's, 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 it's the final end of a longer trend. But what we are also seeing, which gives us much more additional concern, is that the additives and cuts and fillers that are being put into the drugs are becoming more diverse and more dangerous than we've ever seen. And I've been looking at heroin in North Carolina for 15 years, and this is the you know first time that we're seeing some molecules um, 
that have never really been seen in North Carolina before. The crime labs and the medical examiners are also confirming the same things we're seeing on the street. Uh, we're testing drug samples, and um, the medical examiners are, taste, are testing what people are dying of from overdoses. I can, I can give you some examples of... Yeah, that, um, that, would, that was going to be my next question. That would be, that would be great. Mm-hmm. So uh, one example is we had we tested some samples from a uh, someone in Durham who was a uh, had a, had a lot of experience using heroin and had said that a particular batch had made him hallucinate and this is not usually something we associate with heroin um, but and it was a very strong type of hallucination it turns out that that particular batch of drugs had something called tenocyclidine, which is a PCP analog. So PCP or angel dust is one of the most potent hallucinogens that we know. And this is a molecule that we rarely see in any street drug um, Mm -hmm. and let alone in North Carolina. So this was an an anomaly. The other drug that we're really worried about is called xylazine. And this is something that causes really horrific skin lesions, even like beyond the site of injection. And it is something that is originally a veterinary medication, but has been put into uh, the street supply here in North Carolina. Uh, we know about 10 years ago, there was an outbreak of xylazine contaminated heroin in Puerto Rico, and that caused huge amounts of uh, overdoses and skin lesions and other problems. We had been hearing about xylazine in other places in the United States, but really it's been in the, during the pandemic that this dangerous uh, new compound is showing up in the street drugs. Can you, can you um, talk a little bit about um, what may be, because you know, I'm sure it's, it's not just one single factor, it, it, it must be sort of a confluence of factors, but um, uh, are there... Um, specific incentives or, or trends that you're seeing that are leading, uh, that, 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 are, that are causing these um, uh, new um, uh, substances that weren't seen in the drug supply before to pop up now? Um, is, it, is, it, is it sort of related to um, evasion from, from drug testing? Is it, is it uh, cheaper on the sort of on the production side? Um, what like what exactly is is causing this or making this uh, cause, causing this to happen? Mm-hmm. So the illicit drug market is very much mirrors the broader trends in consumer goods in the United States. So when supply chain difficulties affect toilet paper, affect other consumer goods, those are the same. You'll see other disruptions in the drug supply as well. Mm-hmm. So during the pandemic, as supply chains for precursors and other chemicals have become disrupted through, you know, in the global, global supply networks, there's been kind of forced innovation to find alternatives that might fill the gap for some of those, um, for some of those supply chain issues. At the same time, we are also seeing kind of more frivolous trends that mirror the consumer goods. So, for example, if you look at the heroin supply in North Carolina right now, you see lots of different colors, like pinks and fuchsias, greens, yellows, and uh, this kind of very specific color palette, but it but is kind of, you know, just it doesn't really change the 
the active ingredients in the drug, but just Mm -hmm. has a more different colorful tone. If you go into Starbucks and you look at the lineup of drinks on the counter, those colors match nearly identically. So it's not that the drug market is copying Starbucks, but it's more that both of those uh, manufacturing systems are tapping into broader societal trends of needing something a little bit more fun during this difficult time in our country's Mm -hmm. history. Um, And so we're... You know, so the market is really, you know, a, a reflection of broader consumer good trends. Yeah. So I was wondering, um, sort of in a in a practical sense, um, the the new um, uh, drug assessment um, that that you're launching. I was wondering if you could talk about what that looks like in a practical sense, um, and if you could also explain, you know, what does actual drug checking look like. Um, in the first place. Sure. So the so right now, forensic chemistry is used to tell people what's in drugs only when it's too late. We tell people what's in drugs when they're arrested and they're in court. We tell mm-hmm. family members what their loved ones died of in an overdose. Those are both instances where it's too late for that person to be given the choice to make a better decision about their health. So what we're trying to do is bring those chemistry methods into the public health realm. And by doing so, we are trying to have better preventative behaviors, trying to prevent overdoses before they happen, before people get arrested, as well as um, using that data to inform better clinical care, as well as uh, printing, you know, figuring out where overdoses are happening. And the way that we do this is we work very closely with uh, syringe exchange programs and public health programs around the state. We have, a, we have eight of them who are signed up in our program now. It started in Greensboro with the Urban, uh, North Carolina Survivors Union, and they uh, have a and they were kind of the pioneers of this method of being able to test street drugs. And then we uh, kind of came in to support them and use our chemistry machinery at UNC. It's a very, very sophisticated uh, machinery that was uh, being underutilized. And uh, we were able to come up with a test kit that we can send out to any county, any uh, health department, any syringe exchange program, public health program, whatever it is, and uh, give them a test kit that looks very much like a COVID PCR kit. And mm-hmm. people can um, swab the empty residue out of an empty bag of drugs that was involved in an overdose, send it to our lab, and we'll get them results back in a couple of days. Um, and this allows us to have much more precise interventions. So if we know specifically which batches of drugs, then the warnings can be more precise. Uh, if we can know what other health harms are being caused, uh, we can respond to other drug-related harms that are uh, that precede overdoses. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can inform clinical care better. Like we get calls from uh, physicians in different hospitals around the state saying, "Hey, we have this weird case of some kind of medical condition. We think it might have been from the drugs they were using. Can we send those to you to test?" So we've worked out kind of the DEA licensing and all the other uh, legal aspects of this. And um, yeah, so we're, so we're, so that's like the chemistry side of it. And then the other side is uh, to really figure out how to communicate drug alerts effectively. So we yeah. see news alerts, right? And health departments and law enforcement putting out drug alerts, but they all kind of sound the same. And so we're working with our health communications experts to really figure out 
what kind of messaging works to get people to make better health choices as well as to reduce any unintended consequences and not have risk seeking for when there's a you know uh, like a more potent batch so it's a, and the Foundation for Opioid Response Efforts has funded this particular aspect of it. It's a private foundation, yeah. um, but we're hoping to expand statewide um, uh, for very quickly here. So um, I actually wanted to uh, to ask you about um, what you know what um, you, you talk about effective communication. So I, I wanted to ask you about that, but um, just really quickly, I wanted to go back to uh, you were talking about how this enables warnings that are more precise. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, can you just sort of elaborate on that a little bit more? Um, you know, is, is the intention to basically um, uh, issue sort of targeted warnings to specific communities if you see something um, coming back, testing uh, for something more potent, more, more dangerous from a specific batch, from a specific sample? Um, is, is the idea basically to issue specific uh, warnings to specific communities, um, basically notifying them, saying, uh, you know, this is something you sh- people should be aware of, that this has been uh, detected in, you know, in your vicinity, basically. Yes. So I think that's the, that's the, that's the right concept. Um, so there, because there's going to be times when there are new chemicals that are emerging and, there's there's often an initial panic that comes with it, and we really need to know like is this a real threat to health? Like is this what we need to be spending our time paying attention to, or is this another one of the many many drug trends that's going to show up for a few weeks and disappear? So it's it's about helping health departments prioritize their resources. Mm-hmm. It is about uh, having you know hyper local warnings. So drugs are very local, right? These are like physical things, and it really matters where you are, even within a city. So we're you know we would like to get it down to neighborhood level uh, if there is a if there is a particular concern to be able to uh, to alert those communities. And mm-hmm. it's you know people who use drugs, it's health workers, it's you know clinicians who need to be aware. Hey, look, there's this new atypical kind of skin lesion that you're going to start seeing. Here's how you treat it. And this is all about being prepared. We've been yeah. in this overdose crisis for two decades, right? It's time for new solutions. We need to have better and more tailored information and not just, you know, be rate, you know, be worried about the number of overdoses. Those, those numbers that keep going up and we don't change our rhetoric. We need better messaging and better targeted interventions. And I think North Carolina is a great place to do this work because the level of innovation that we have available in this state is, I think, some of the best in the country. And so I'm really confident that once we can start showing what's really in-street drugs, what's causing real harm, that our communities of... Um, of, of you know, on the ground communities as well as like academic and scientific communities will come up with better solutions. And I think North Carolina will be leading the way in terms of innovation uh, of what the next generation of, um, of op- you know, opioid and drug related harm prevention is. Yeah. Um, that, I think that's uh, certainly something that um, when, when you talk to people who, uh, you know, harm reduction, um, uh, uh, people in the harm reduction space or um, 
researchers or even public health officials, um, you sort of uh, hear this um, hear this a lot that this is uh, you know this has been an extremely long um, uh, long time that people have been suffering, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and and the trend that that we're seeing from the data, basically 2019 onwards, is um, extremely concerning. So um, I I think that's absolutely correct that you know um, there's no better time to um, uh, come up with with a new system of, um, you know, uh, trying to intervene before it's it's too late. Basically, like you were saying, um, That's right? We want to prevent so, the suffering, right? We want to prevent the heartache that are yeah. that is happening in our communities. Yeah. Um, so w- when you when you talk about hyper local uh, outreach, um, do you? I mean, can you talk about what that? looks like have have you um have you determined what that might look like does it you know with this with the notification process um be through something like social media platforms or be sort of um uh you know ind- individual text alerts uh, of of some kind going out um in specific zip codes specific uh communities or through some sort of a, through a website for the assessment for the new program, how, what would this look like in terms of people interacting with it on a regular basis? Yeah, it's, it's a great evolving question. So definitely like all the data are going to be public. This is going to be 100% anonymous. We don't need to know anything about the individual. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a proactive stance and a reactive stance. So the proactive is there are already people who are who are embedded in the communities that are most affected, who are providing services and care and have been there and helping the people who are having problems with drugs uh, for and they've done this for years. So we want to they know how to talk to those people, reach the people that they serve. And we want this to be something that helps them. Um, to have better and rash and have more rational conversations and give more validation back to to those service models. The reactive stance is um, would be if there was a spate of overdoses, if a hospital started seeing an increase in overdose counts, if a um, if there was a bad batch that was being discussed uh, among participants in needle exchange, right? These are like important indicators that usually that's where our knowledge stops is that there's yeah. an increase in something. But mm-hmm. let's go in and characterize exactly what the health harms are. Uh, maybe it's not just overdose. Maybe it's causing, you know, a huge drop in blood glucose level, blood sugar level. Uh, there's, you know, there's some of the chemicals we find in street drugs have all these other consequences that don't go addressed. So let's really treat all of what is happening here. And so in a reactive stance, we would drop kits um, on, you know, by request, of course, to whichever community or hospital or syringe exchange program, whatever it is that's ne- that is dealing with that outbreak and then, um, you know, let them go on. In terms of communicating it back, you know, we're, we have surveillance dashboards. There's a lot of dashboards that are out there. I personally think that using video, using kind of smaller, quicker communications where you don't need to have as much um, quantitative background to tell mm-hmm. the story, that's kind of where I'm personally going with this. I've 
I love dashboards, built a lot of them in my time, but I think in this particular instance, because we're talking chemical details and chemical names, we're talking behaviors that are hidden or illegal sometimes, right? This is, is this isn't like the kind of thing that lends itself to like a big quantitative dashboard all the time. So I think we yeah. have to really tell the story about it. And so it sounds like at least to begin with, um, uh, you know, you mentioned um, the data would be would be public, but in terms of the outreach, you would sort of go back to go go through the actual harm reduction groups that you're you're seeking to partner with. Um, yes, I think phase one them sort of says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think phase one is definitely the health departments, harm reduction programs, and then um, we've built a software platform for giving results back that mm-hmm. each community can customize to put in, like, here's the local treatment providers who can help you with your addiction problems, or here is the hours of the syringe exchange program, or here's local information that you need. Um, so we've, we have built that software platform, we're testing it, going to launch it in a month or so. Um, but that will kind of blend a public-facing thing with local control as well as the data. Um, but it's going to be less about graphs and charts and more about yeah. writing out text that people can actually understand <laughs> instead of long yeah. chemical names, right? Yes. Um, so uh, I wanted to revisit something you said earlier. You talked about um, uh, effective communication, how, how to issue these warnings in a way that's effective. Um, and, uh, and, and you said that, you know, um, sometimes warnings about more dangerous or more potent drugs can actually have unintended consequences, can actually um, uh, sort of, in a way, sort of backfire. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, can you um, give us an idea of what effective communication effective warnings would look like well, you know what what kind of messaging would that be yes absolutely so i should i will credit uh Alison lazard at the unc school of uh, journalism and health communications who um who has really been my thought partner in this and her research has shown that for she's done a lot of uh randomized trials and other like very detailed research uh, on like COVID messaging, on sugary drink warnings, alcohol, tobacco, all sorts of things. And so she's got a list of uh, best practices. So right now, like a drug alert should have the action that the person needs to take, that the reader or the audience needs to take as like the main key thing, right? It needs to be uh, it needs to have a hook as to why this is relevant to that person yeah. at this time, right? And, um, and, you know, there's just some basic rules. But when you look at the actual health alerts, drug alerts that are issued in North Carolina, uh, and, and this is not just by the state health department, you know, this is just in, across the board. It's not even just yeah. South Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, it's the logo of the institution that is issuing it is like huge and at the top of the page, right? And it says the words like alert, beware, warning, you know, and it's like in like big red, you know, cheesy font. And it's just kind of like a trope. It's not effective communication. So we have design principles and then we test those in a messaging randomized trial to figure out which uh, configuration of text and images and words and how you phrase different things actually changes people's perceptions and intentions of uh, seeking that 
uh, drug out. So we can do this in a way that is completely evidence-based. It's not us guessing what to say. It's not us trying to be clever, but it is like testing different configurations of messages in a way that we can definitively say, this. if you say it this way and frame it this way, then uh, there's going to be a 70% less chance that they're going to go and try to seek out the more potent drug. Mm-hmm. So... Um uh, looking, looking ahead, um, do you have a, a, a timeline for, you know, when this assessment, um, will roll out? And, um, and then the other thing I was wondering was, um, have you set sort of objectives for what, at least in the initial, in, in, in the first phase as you roll this out, um, what would, what would a successful implementation of it look like? What you know? Mm-hmm. What are you sort of um, looking to achieve in the short term, at least? So our rollout is going to be uh, April May. We're going to start. So we have the kits assembled, and um, we have eight sites enrolled uh, working with us. Certain change programs everywhere from Pitt County, Randolph County, uh, all the way out to Macon and uh, Cherokee County. Um, Guilford, Durham. So uh, we have uh, eight sites. We would really, really like to expand this as a service to the rest of the state. Like this is like this isn't just about. This isn't really intended as. Sorry, this isn't a research first project. Mm-hmm. Our citizens are dying. We need to do something about it. We have the resources at UNC to help, and this is our mission is to fulfill this as a service to the rest of the state. So we're starting with eight because that's all we have funding for uh, from the Foundation for uh, Opioid Response Efforts. But we would, you know, we would like to continue this as a service that any community in North Carolina could access. Okay. Um, well, um, I uh, want to thank you very much for um, taking some time uh, today to to talk with us about this uh, this new assessment program um, uh, and and explain you know um, you know how how this is going to work um, and what what this uh, you know how this might um, make a meaningful contribution a, a significant uh, potentially contribution to um, uh, you know warning people and, and saving lives um, at least in, in in the short term the immediate term. Um, I know this is a an incredibly uh, you know sort of complicated uh, issue that that we're we're talking about this morning. But um, is there anything else uh, before we go that you'd like to like to mention or like to address um, or or think people should keep in mind? Just that it's time for new solutions, and we should all be part of figuring out what we can do better. Okay. Well, uh, well, thank you again, uh, Dr. Vescopta, for joining us on this episode of Under the Dome. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks for your attention. That does it for us this week. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Under the Dome. Until then, I'm Avi Bajpai with the News and Observer. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for her weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com newsletters. Thank you.